Generation Church, based in the beautiful Rex Theater in the heart of downtown Pensacola, Florida. Our hope is that today's teaching will encourage and equip you to be firm in faith, to fulfill the call of God in your life, and to finish well. Grab your Bible, open up your notes app, and let's dive in. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing you which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Good morning. How's everybody doing? Good. Brave in the cold. I woke up this morning. I was like, well, this isn't Florida. Um, But it feels good uh, to be with you this morning. Thank you, Pastor Roger, for the opportunity to share. Uh, as we kick off um, week two of our First John series, um, if I don't know you, my name is Taylor, and I have the incredible opportunity to be one of the pastors here at Generation, uh, specifically over youth, so shameless plug. If you want to come join us on a Wednesday night, uh, we have a good time at 6, uh, every Wednesday at 6 o'clock, so come join us. Um, but I'm excited to kick off this word uh, this morning um, and just really believing for God to Uh, speak to us this morning. And so like we've mentioned, we're in this series, Are You Sure? And our hope for you is to use that question, Are You Sure? is kind of a self-evaluation of where you are in your life spiritually, maybe by the fruit that is showing in your life. And so what we're going to do today to start off, we're going to be in two places in your Bible. Uh, First, we're going to be in 1 John 5, verse 13, which is kind of our key text, Um, and then 1 John will start in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, and it says this in in, uh, chapter 5. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the 
Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And so that is where this question, are you sure, comes from. You know, not just are you sure that you're saved, but are you sure that the way you're living or that how you are living is the way you ought to live if we carry and bear the name Jesus Christ? The fruit and evidence of our life is what should be seen when people look at us. So are you sure that you're living the way that you ought to live? And as we jump into our key text uh, for today, 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2, it says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the world. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning for the opportunity for us to gather together in your presence. Lord, I pray uh, for new revelation of your word. Holy Spirit, we invite you here to invade our hearts and our minds. Lord, show us what you want us to see today. Change our hearts and let us walk out of here completely different because we have met with you, God. We give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. And so like I mentioned uh, in that first verse, um, that we, he wants us to, John wants us to be reassured and assured that because of Jesus, we have eternal life. And Pastor Roger kicked us off last week in 1 John 1, and in 1 John 1, it even talks about how sin is always going to be there. But yet, here comes John in chapter 2, the very next chapter, saying, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Well, how is that possible? (laughs) And then he says, but if you do sin, we have an advocate, the Father. And Pastor Roger touched on it a lot last week, but John uses the phrase light and dark or light and darkness a lot throughout this book and uses that as an example of light and darkness. So I don't know if you've ever been in a place where it's been really dark. Uh, maybe you've gone camping or find yourself somewhere like when I was younger and, and not very smart. For whatever reason, we would go to these haunted houses. I don't know if this is an everywhere thing or just kind of a redneck Alabama thing. But we would go and there would be these old warehouses that would shut down for a week and would turn into this giant haunted house. And there was always a part of it where it was pitch black and it was terrifying and full of anxiety. Don't ever go there. Um, But John paints a huge picture of light and darkness and how that pertains to our life. And to kind of give a little context of John in this particular point in his life, at this point, John is like the last one of the first like apostles and disciples. He's he's the last, he's seasoned. At this point in his life, he's he's like near the end, he's trying to leave his last will and testament, so to speak, and encouraging us to live a certain way, but also to be aware of a few things. And so he uses us, and if you read, and when Chris read our text this morning, he uses the words children and beloved and and words like that, so he's you can hear his heart and his passion from like a fatherly standpoint of like, this is my last encouraging word to you, now go make a difference. Go live a life that God has called you to be, live in light, not in darkness. Avoid the darkness. And he's warning us even more so against false teaching 
You know, he wrote this book between 97 and 100 AD, which is after Paul's writings. And we know that Paul had a pretty consistent theme through every letter he wrote about being aware of false teaching. And so these false teachers had come in and not only confused what they were supposed to believe, but even what was right and wrong and how to live and how to overcome sin and all this stuff. So there was this huge dilemma, which I would say we still live in today where there is this battle for our minds and what's right and what's wrong and what's even in the church. And to be honest, even in a, specifically in America, I feel like the American church has just kind of become okay with some things and kind of just said, well, yeah, that's sin, but that's not my sin, so I'm just not going to worry about it. But the church It's the light of the world. We, as individuals, as Christians, if we bear that name on our chest, if we follow Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, all sin should worry us. All sin should mess with us. We should fight against all sin, whether it's ours or not. We have a moral duty, a biblical worldview to stand by and to defend in order so that people experience Jesus. In Matthew 5, when he's talking about light, and he says that, you know, nobody lights a light and puts it under a basket. And I feel like as the American church, we've gotten in this place where we have voluntarily put ourselves under a basket. If the world is going to change around us for the gospel, if the world is going to experience the true word of God and the work of the cross that Jesus paid for us, we have to put ourselves on that stand. What does the rest of that passage say? It says that nobody puts a lamp under a light. Instead, they put on a lamp for the whole house to receive light so that those around us will see our good deeds and worship God in heaven. We are a city on a hill. You are a city on a hill that can't be hidden. Sin's only focus and only job is to dampen that light and to darken that light around us, in us, through us, so that we live in a dark world where in reality all darkness is is simply the absence of light. And if we are the light of the world, the local church is the light of the world, we have to realize the full weight of sin in our lives. You can't overcome something if you don't really think you need to overcome it. You can't fight something if you don't think it needs fighting for. You can't defend something if you don't think you really need to defend it. It's time that as the American church, we rise up and fight this battle against sin and be the light in a dark world that John is talking about. Because in in John's text specifically, light represents God's truth or God's word, and the darkness represents false teaching and sin. And so, like I asked you earlier, can you recall a time when you were in a really, really dark place and remember the feeling that it just kind of brought to you? And I don't really have many phobias outside of like maybe really high places and snakes. But when Shelby and I were in Israel, um, our tour guide was like, hey, let's go through the Hezekiah's tunnel, right? And if you know what Hezekiah's tunnel is, King Hezekiah, back in, the, in those days, built this underground tunnel. Our tour guide told us that uh, he built this to avoid paying taxes so he could just go under the city and all that stuff. 
But if you do research on it, he also built it with uh, you know, hopes of fortifying the city, like having a, a tunnel to be able to um, get to places without getting caught or something like that. So kind of a defense thing too. And uh, so we decided to do this. And, and if you're like me in the spur of the moment, people's like, oh yeah, that's going to be awesome. Let's do that. And then we saw this picture or this view. And I felt like I was walking into my grave. And um, I, like I said, I don't really, I'm not scared of claustrophobia or anything like that, but this was different. And uh, maybe the fact that it was, I felt like I was, like if there's an earthquake that happens, like I'm just going to sit down and pray because there's no way out. But if you look in the bottom, that is water. And then on top of that, my wife Shelby, she does get claustrophobia. And she was also five and a half months pregnant with Olivia. And I tell her, I was like, look, there's a perfectly good tunnel right here full of light that we could walk through and we don't have to do this. Because A, if we get in the middle and you freak out, we can't do nothing. And uh, all the while I'm hoping in my mind, like, please say we don't have to do this. And... Um, <laughs> And so she did, and she was like, we came all the way over here to Israel, let's do it. And uh, we took a selfie. Uh, it's really blurry on like an iPhone 6 or something. Uh, well, almost there. There we go. So really blurry, um, super dark. We're both, I'm not really smiling. Shelby's smiling. I mean, if you look right above our heads, that's not like a demon or anything. Uh, his name's John. He was on our team. Um, but our tour guide, uh, his name was Dan. Um, before we walk in, he goes, hey, let's really get this full experience uh, and turn off our flashlights. I'm like, gosh, this is a terrible idea. And I'm thinking in my head, you know, he's probably leading us astray because I at least guarantee you that King Hezekiah was smart enough to have a candle or something going through here. And so not only did we do it, which was cool to say we did it, but um, we put ourselves in the middle of our team. So if something bad did happen, we were just stuck. You can't go forward or back. The guy in front of me, I kid you not, was like six seven, And so he was like bent over the whole time. And there were parts throughout this tunnel where water was waist high. So like you're conquering about seven different fears through this experience. And so... Yes, it was fun going through it. Yes, we broke the rules to take this selfie, um, but we did it anyways. Cool experience. If you do go, maybe you should give it a shot. Um, obviously, nothing bad's ever happened in there, or I definitely wouldn't have done it. But um, I say all that to say and use that example. When we were in there, like I had this incredibly like uneasy feeling. Like Even in that picture, I might look calm on the outside, but don't let my lack of expression fool you. I was like raging with fear on the inside. And the whole time. And so you hear the phrase like light at the end of the tunnel. When I saw that, I'm like, okay, let's sprint. Like, let's get out of here. And uh, so cool experience, but the darkness really will hold you down. It'll hold you back. It'll rob you of different things. And that's exactly what sin does. Sin is not good. Sin holds us back from everything that God has for us. And in order to move forward to realize the power of what Jesus did on the cross, you have to first really understand the weight of sin in our lives. And so on your notes, um, 
if you've probably already noticed, the blanks are already filled in. You're welcome. Um, it just means you have to take extra good notes around the blanks that are already filled in. Um, but you're, we'll start right here where it says, what about sin? And just these are three things that I, I felt like that these are things that I've learned along the way to really understand the power of sin and the stronghold that it can have in our life is that sin separates us from the will of God. If we willfully allow sin to take root in our lives, we're allowing it to take place of God in our lives and to pull us further and further away from God and his perfect will for us. We need to understand that there is a real consequence for sin, which is death. We see that in Romans. For the wages of sin is death. We know that. That should have been our penalty. Then number three, we realize that it creates a false sense of joy. Or I even been thinking about the word. It creates a false sense of belonging. Because a lot of times we feel like we're struggling and we find ourselves in those seasons and we're maybe God's not speaking as clearly as we thought he would do or he's not necessarily doing what we thought he would do. So we feel like we need to take it in our own hands when we may even feel like we found what we were looking for. But only for a moment it creates that false sense of belonging that ends up messing everything up for us. Brings darkness into our light. It brings like, you know, how a false light kind of is those glow sticks that you crack and it's real bright at first. And then it just with time gets darker and darker to the point of where there's no light. That's what sin does in our life. It may create uh, something in a relationship where it seems right. It may even seem godly. The devil's not just going to bring something in your life and call it sin. He may disguise it with a beautiful red bow and maybe even make it look like God. But a lot of times it's sin and it brings us into darkness and it brings us into this false sense of belonging where every time we find ourselves back in this cycle where we can't get out of it and we're asking God, where is he? Where are you? Then we start questioning God. You want to evaluate where you are spiritually? When bad things happen, and I'm speaking to myself when I say this, or when bad seasons I can always tell if I've allowed too much darkness into my life because I question God as if I deserve to. Like, we don't deserve to question God. He's the one with the perfect will, not mine. When at the end of the day, I'm one step away from the blessing that he's trying to show us. That if I'm living in light, and I'm living through the victory of sin that Jesus has given me, then I'm able to see that the pain, the very pain that I'm questioning is the stepping stone to the blessing that he's created for me. But if we have sin in our life and darkness in our life, it is impossible to see that. So I ask you again, are you sure? Is the fruit of your life showing the evidence of the work of the cross in your life? That's a question we need to all ask ourselves today. Well, let me ask it this way. If you weren't to say a word to anyone, would the fruit of your life reveal Jesus to the world around you? By your actions, by your demeanor, how you serve people. Because there's another passage in our text today that says that 
Through this, God's love is, perspe- is perfected. So if you didn't say a word, would the people around you see Jesus? It's important for us to ask that. And so we know that John's goals for us and for the readers and for us today is that we would understand that Jesus, the righteous one, came to earth fully man and died a sinner's death so that we could be made right before God. He not only wants us to understand that, but wants us to have the evidence in our own lives to prove that because we are the carriers of light in this dark world. Let us not let sin or struggles that we have rob us of that incredible opportunity of making Jesus known to the world around us. We are the hope of the world. You are the hope of the world. Not people that have a certain degree, not people that could quote more scripture than the next one or have the most eloquent, like King James Version prayer, dows and arts and perfect church attendance. We all are. Struggles, hang-ups included. We are the hope of the world. But we have to understand the weight of sin in our life and how it will rob us of the perfect, incredible life that God created for us. And so when preparing all of this, I felt like there was three things that we could realize, and this is straight from the text itself. You know, how myself included, we, we try to make it creative. I call them sticky statements. These aren't very sticky, uh, but they come straight from the verse and, and, and straight from the passages. And honestly, with, there's so much in chapter two. In fact, we broke it in half. So next week, Pastor Adam uh, is going to teach on the second half of it. But I could just stay on verses one through five in this chapter and it preached the whole chapter itself. Just one through five. And there's, or, and there's th- things we could learn from that and that we must realize. And that first one, it's there in your notes, is that we must realize we have an advocate and his name is Jesus. We, like, we all need accountability and we all need help on this earth, but if Jesus isn't our advocate, then we're always going to fall short. We need accountability. We need accountability that's going to tell us when we're wrong and we're not going to get mad about it. But here's, here's the thing that happens when we allow Jesus to be our advocate. At some point, you're going to be offended. At some point, Jesus is going to convict you and you're going to be offended And you're going to question things. But when we have Jesus as our advocate, we have all the help we need. 1 John 2, 1 says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus, with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. It is comforting to know that Jesus not only intercedes for us, but he pleads for us. We deserve the wrath of God. Everyone in here. We deserve the wrath of God. But yet Jesus, in all of his love for us, gave his life for us, and he still intercedes for us, and he pleads for us because we belong to him. I don't know about you, but I didn't have to do anything like that but yet Jesus gave us everything. 
I'm still going to sin. I'm still going to fall short. I'm still going to mess up. I'm still going to struggle. Yet Jesus saw that and still gave me everything. That's who I want to live for. That's who I want to be my helper, which we're going to come back to that in a few moments. The second thing is that we must realize that Jesus is the propitiation for our sin. We read that in 1 John 2, 2, that he is the propitiation for our sins and not for us, but only, but also for the sins of the whole world, which is a very interesting word, right? Propitiation. I just learned it last week, <laughs> including how to spell it. And Pastor Roger mentioned it last week and I'd been reading through it and I was like, man, that's such a strange word. But we even read it again in Romans 3, 23 through 25. It says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This is to show God's righteousness because in His divine divine forbearance He had passed over former sin. So it says it has to be received by faith. It says it doesn't have to be received when you get your life together or when you stop sinning. Like That's the beauty of the cross is that Jesus looked down at us and saw us as his own, so he gave his life for us, knowing that we may never love him back. And this propitiation word, David Gusick says it like this. He says, propitiation has the idea of presenting a gift to the gods so that so as to turn away the displeasure of the gods. The Greeks thought of this in the sense of man essentially bribing the gods into doing favor for man. But in the Christian idea of propitiation, God himself presents himself in Christ Jesus as, as that which will turn away his righteous wrath against our sin. Doesn't that seem kind of backwards? Like if the ancient Greeks would look at this, that they needed to do stuff in order to just make God not mad, or their gods not mad at them or not to have displeasure in them. Even in the Old Testament days, like what did the Jews have to do? Sacrifice animals in hopes that God would forgive them, knowing that they were going to mess up again, have to sacrifice another animal over and over and over. But yet, Jesus comes along. He goes to the cross and did the complete opposite. God himself, in the form of Jesus Christ, came to earth, perfect and blameless, and died a sinner's death that I deserve, that you deserve, so that we could be made right in God's eyes. He took it upon himself. He didn't require anything of me. Not a single thing. I don't know about you, but there's been times in my life where I've been stuck in this performance-based Christianity. And I think that just by doing this, having good church attendance and going to small group or going to growth track and all this stuff, which are all incredible things that play a big part in our journey and helping us grow and mature in our faith, but there's no bribing God. There's nothing that we can do to make God love us any more or any less than 
Any, you see what I'm saying? Like God loves us so much that he sent his perfect son to the cross to die for our sins in our place and flip the script knowing that we would never be good enough, but yet he loved us anyways and made us right in his own eyes. That's love, right? That's what love is. He doesn't look at anything. God's love is not transactional. It's not like a gift card that's eventually going to run out of money when you spend it all. He will unconditionally love you all the time, every day of your life, no matter what. So we have to understand that. God, Jesus, is the propitiation of our sin, of our sin in our life. We are no longer slaves to our, slaves to our sin, so we have to start living that way. Jesus died for us so that we could live our lives from a place of victory, not trying to earn victory. We will always be victorious. When Jesus comes back or we stand before God, we are victorious because of what he did on the cross, not by a single thing that we did. And we will never be able to earn it. And the third thing that we need to realize is that if we're going to overcome sin, we must abide in God alone. Which abide, it's another interesting word. But we can spend our entire lives fighting a war that's already been won when we abide in God. We're able to live in that victory, and even more than that, we're able to live and look like God. Plain and simple. 1 John 2, 5, But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this way we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. It doesn't say go figure it out and then come to God. He's just saying abide in me. Let me guide you. Live for me and let me show you. Through God's love, we are made right in his eyes, but we have to abide in him. John 15, 4 says, Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself. Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. Now, I don't know if you have vines in your yard. I do not like them. They grow everywhere, and then you can't clean them up. But at the same time, they're pretty strong when they're connected to the source. And I learned something interesting in between services. A lady came up to me, but did you know that if you picked up a vine off the ground and stuck it back in the ground, it would grow again. So maybe some of us in here today, our vine is broken. And it's time that we reconnect back to Jesus Christ. Because I don't know about you, but I am tired of looking around and feeling like myself included at times is so to speak, faking it till I make it. 
I think that could potentially be a motto of the American church right now. That we're just faking it till we make it. And the only way to stop doing that is to get back to where our only focus is abiding in the presence of God. Because it's then that we look like God. That the fruit and evidence of our life isn't the sin in our life or the struggles in our life, but the power and love of God flowing through us. Everything we do as a Christian comes from the overflow of our love relationship with God in the first place. And if there's nothing there, if we're not connected to that vine, then nobody's going to see Jesus through us. I want to live my life in such a way that I'm like a mirror. And when people, when people look in that mirror, they see Jesus. Or in another way, I was thinking about this, a three-legged race. Anybody ever done that before with someone, right? It's a pretty terrible experience if both people or one person's uh, incredibly uncoordinated. But you have two minds trying to go the same direction at the same speed. If one person goes right, the person on the left is going to have to go right. The person on the left goes left, the person on the right is going to have to go left. And front and backwards and so to speak. So what would your life look like if Jesus in the flesh was right next to you? When I had this thought, it really challenged me because... You know, when you're driving down the road and somebody cuts you off, I think the last thing you think about is Jesus being next to you. Right? (laughs) But what would that look like? Like I just mentioned a mirror, I want to live my life in such a way that if when Jesus looked at me, it was like he was looking at a mirror and he saw himself. I can't do that if I'm focused, only focused on sin in my life. What would America look like? What would the world look like? And my prayer is that it starts right here at Generation Church. If we abided in God together, live like the overcomers that we all are, and walked out of here and changed the world around us. That everywhere we went, people looked at us just like they looked at Peter and John when they were arrested. That they're ordinary people with little teaching but they have been with Jesus. That's what I want people to say about Generation Church. That, yeah, we meet in a cool theater that was built a long time ago, but those people love Jesus. They serve people. Through them, God's love is perfected. That comes when we abide in Jesus. That comes from the word Parakletos in the original language, which means one who pleads another's cause, who helps another by defending or comforting. And I know I mentioned this earlier, but how comforting is it to know that Jesus is at the right hand of God right now, not only interceding for us, but defending us, telling God they are mine. Every one of them, sin and all, struggles and all, They are mine. I gave my life for them. I love them and I'm leading them. I can get behind that. There's no confusion in that. 
It helps me to understand that when I couldn't give God anything, he gave me everything. That struggles, insecurities, whatever it may be, God gave me everything when I could not do a single thing for him. That's love. And he wants that for everyone in this room. And as the band comes up and we get ready to close, you know, when you read that definition of, of uh, you know, parakletos and, and uh, one who pleads, and, and again, I, I skipped this, so if you're confused a little bit, I'm sorry, but it's back to the word advocate, right? He's our helper. And he's someone that is pleading and defending us. What does that sound like? A lawyer, right? And uh, I've, I've shared stories a hundred times about this, but um, I love crime shows, documentaries, all that stuff. I don't know why, but I do. Specifically the ones that said I got all the courtroom stuff in it and evidence and like stories and all this stuff is just fascinating to me. And we all know this, but in the law, law courtroom setting, you have a defender and you have a prosecutor. And I want to read this story. And if you want, close your eyes and just picture yourself as the person on trial. And just listen to this story. It is if we stand as the accused in the heavenly court before our righteous judge, God the Father. Our advocate stands up to answer the charges. He is completely guilty, Your Honor. Not a good start, right? If the person defending you opens up with already telling them that you're guilty. He's completely guilty, Your Honor. In fact, he has even done worse than what he's accused of. I think at this point would probably say, you know what? I think I want to defend myself, right? Well, let's, go, let's move forward. He's done more than he's already accused of now makes full and complete confession before you. The gavel slams and the judge asks, what should his sentence be? Our advocate answers, his sentence shall be death. He deserves the full wrath of this righteous court. All along, our accuser Satan is having a great fun at all this. We are guilty. We admit our guilt. We see our punishment. But then our advocate asks to approach the bench. As he draws close to the judge, he simply says, Dad, this one belongs to me. I paid his price. I took the wrath and punishment from this court that he deserves. And the gavel sounds again and the judge cries out, Guilty is charged. Penalty satisfied. Our accuser starts going crazy. Aren't you even going to give him, aren't you even going to put him on probation? No, the judge shouts. The penalty has been completely paid by my son. There's nothing to put him on probation for. Then the judge turns to our advocate and says, Son, you said this one belongs to you. I release him into your care. 
case closed. Now, I don't know about you, but I can just kind of picture myself in that setting, feeling this feeling of like, man, it's fixing to get really bad for me. But then Jesus goes up to God and says, this one's mine. I died for him. He says that about every one of you. He looked at you, sin, blemish and all, and said, they're worth it. I love them. They are mine. And if we're ever going to understand the weight of that and to feel the freedom and live in the victory that God has given us through that, we will never be able to truly overcome the sin in our lives if we don't feel the weight of it. And Paul Washer says this, he says, Man cannot adequately understand the significance of Christ's death unless they also understand the significance of their own sin. And so my prayer for you this morning, everyone in here, and if you're watching online, is to feel that weight. Because on the other side of that weight is redemption, is eternity. And there's a place for every one of you. And so as we pray, I want to give you that opportunity this morning. Just like the verse that Pastor Roger shared during transition, Jesus took everything. He took our beating, our punishment, our sentence. You could even change that story up a little bit when Jesus said that When he said that their penalty is death, he could have also just said in that story, but why don't you take me out? Why don't you give me his punishment? Why? Because I love them. God has joy for you and life for you. And it's time together that we stand up and live a victorious life who has found victory over sin. And so if you're in here and I ask you that question again, are you sure? Maybe it is completely linked to, are you sure if you've received salvation or not? All it takes is a simple prayer that you mean in your heart. And you could just say something like this. Just say, dear Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. And I repent, God, of all my sins. Sins that I know I've committed. Sins that I'm not even aware of. But I ask you now, God, to save me, to be my Lord and to be my Savior. I want to be light. I don't want to live in darkness anymore. Lead me, Lord. And maybe you're in here and you feel like you've just been kind of tossed and turned by the waves of this earth or this world around us and it's just been so hard and you need to just Reconnect with the heart of God in your own life and allow the Holy Spirit to begin to transform you and refine you and free you from all this sin and all these hangups and confusion and even doubts. I just want to pray for you this morning. So Father, God, if anyone's in here and they're just on the ropes, they're in a boat and there's holes all in it and they're sinking and there's waves thrashing them and pushing them around and there's just nothing to hold on to anymore God you're it 
Lord, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you fill them with your presence more than they've ever received before. Lord, I pray for, for your guidance. Lord, renew their strength. Renew their heart. Pick them up. Your word says that that we may stumble, but we'll never fall because it's you that hold us with your strong right hand. Lord, I speak that over them this morning. And Father, as we close today, God, I pray for this house. I pray for everyone in here and online, God, that when we walk out of here, that people see you. That we no longer live by the bondage of sin that's been in our lives, that we place that at your feet and we live in victory through the work of the cross and what you did for us. That we realize now that you are our advocate, that you took our place, we abide in you, God, and that's it. So lead us and guide us, Father. We love you so much. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. Thanks for hanging out with us at Generation. You can connect with us on Facebook or Instagram at Generation Pensacola or go to the website at generationpensacola.com and from wherever you download your podcasts. If today's teaching impacted you, we'd love to hear about it. So please drop us a note.